cliffcentral.com. All right, let's get into it. We have a busy burning platform for you this morning. Uh, this morning, Pumi Mashiko is here with me as always. Uh, you're the only sensible voice on the burning platform <laughs> that just when, when it's just me and her. <laughs> no, it's true. Do do we have just us on the burning platform? No, no. we, we oh always God. have friends. No, so this morning we have we lots always of friends. have friends. So Canton will be joining us in just a moment or two. Uh, it's back to the school run for him from uh, now because schools have started. But the burning platform with Pumi Mashiko, Canton Pillay, and I this morning. We're also joined by Koketso Rasani, who is a conservative social commentator and business analyst currently working in the healthcare informatics and diagnostics industry. But that's not why we have him here this morning. We have him here to talk about a bunch of things. Koketso, nice to see you. How are you? You good? I think I'm all right. Uh, to be <laughs> well, don't be studio. too enthusiastic. Jeez. <laughs> Listen, uh, end of year fatigue does slip over into January, so there's Oh, that. come on. You can't, start, you can't start with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just Suga. read him the riot act. You've got to start start with some energy. Come on, go get so. When it's the 18th of January, yeah. you cannot be to- Suga. Unbelievable. I'm get out of here. Yeah, I, I, no, I'm you allowed. are not allowed. I'm allowed. You, you must bring energy to the studio. And yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's on the 18th uh, of January end of your fatigue spill over. Let's yeah, not yeah. waste any time. You I want no you want to talk empathy. about the political landscape in the run up to the elections. Um I sent Pumi a bunch of things yesterday that were reported on people's attitudes to certain things, uh, how optimistic they are about the future of the country, party political stuff. Um violence. You, violence. Yeah, the the, the potential propensi- yeah, potential for violence. For violence. What are you feeling at the moment? I mean, I know you're personally feeling like spillover from last year in terms of fatigue, but let's talk about how the country's feeling right now. What are your what are your yeah. barometers telling you? Yeah, quite an odd one. Uh, every week we have a new political party opening up. It oh seems. my god! Uh, how long is this ballot paper going to be? That's one of the things I actually want to bring up. Uh, funny that you ask because I don't think it's being considered logistically on how we're going to fit all these parties into a sizable ballot because those who've been to the ballot will know that you kind of have to mark your X and then you have to fold the thing and put it inside of a box, right? right. So if there's that many parties, how many folds do you have to make to actually put this inside of the box? You know, it's and, then, and then we'll have uh, five ballot papers per box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then there's that as well. So, <laughs> guys, it's a small price to pay for participation. Well, not necessarily. No, if so. you're printing an A4 uh, diary for everybody, and you have to page to page 203 for the political party of your choice, that's almost counterproductive to democracy. People just won't vote, don't you think? No. It's another obstacle. Well, what we need is we need in in order for our democracy to to remain viable and for people to believe that the democracy is actually working, we need a sizable number of people showing up to the ballot. Because the minute people are not showing up, if they if they check out of the system, then we spoke about the potential for violence. Then they, they feel, because that's what an election does. An election is a, is a valve. It's like a stop valve that lets uh, out the pressure in the system. So if people don't show up to vote, then they feel disgruntled, not just about who is in charge, mm. but about the entire system. And then the pressure builds up and then you have violence. Well, uh, Vyasin says you can only fold a piece of paper seven times. Any piece of paper, <laughs> no matter how big it is. So that's an interesting point. And then Azalea says, 
the ballot paper is going to look like your till slip from Food Lovers Market. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'll take the Food Lovers Market one over the one from Clicks uh, because so, of the number at the bottom. Let's be practical for a second. Pumi's very st- strong about the idea that we should have space on a ballot paper for all these parties and that we should have choices and options and people should feel represented. But if we had it your way, how would you separate the wheat from the chaff? The non-serious parties. You know, our producers, Dari and Ryan, were on a call with me yesterday and they both said, you know that the KISS party mm. has contested every election Keep it since, simple, stupid. Since, the, since 1994, the KISS party. You've never had a single representative in any ward, municipality or parliament ever. What's the point? First of all, who's funding them? What a waste of money. Second of all, do we need to have them on the ballot now? I mean, I understand what you're saying, Pums, but surely if you have no chance whatsoever of getting a single seat in any representative body, why should you be allowed to participate? It's just a waste of people's time. How would you separate them? (laughs) Well, let me put it this way. Uh, The easy answer would be to simply raise the requirements for what you need to put your party on the ballot. Uh, I think right now the requirement is you must front something like 300,000 rand, give or take. So that's all it takes really to- Well, we can ask Canton, he did it. We can ask him what the basic, I think think you need, uh, come in here, Canton, we need you. We need your specific expertise here. Um, The door stuck. Just push, just push, (laughs) what the hell? Come on, guys. I said don't close it completely. Uh, Canton, grab a seat. Uh, How many signatures do you need and how much money do you need to have uh, to get your party registered for the elections? So getting the party registered. Hang on a second. Let me just put you on here. There we go. So getting a party registered for the elections only takes five hundred bucks. Okay, but to get yourself into the national ballot, that was two hundred fifty thousand when I registered the ZACP. Two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, it's a lot of money. You say it must be more. You saying it's a lot of money? No, I mean from my perspective. Okay, you you, paid for the whole thing. (laughs) I paid for the whole thing. Yeah. All right, so you, would you say it's worth it then, 250000 Koketsu? I say we raise it. Uh, to what? <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe a million. It's an easy way to actually cut out some of the chaff at the very least. What did you get for your 250000 rand? And I voted for you, but it didn't get me anything. What did we get, Canton? We got just under 30000 Yeah, and Votes. Um, I've, I've got feedback on my... Mm. Uh, Ryan, why is he getting feed? Just take them off. You don't need them. We're not taking calls. Yeah, well, basically what I can do is just kill that and... Uh, Hear yourself. Yeah, and, okay. and new we, don't need, we don't need... We're not taking live calls. You That's don't need true. We're phones. not taking any live calls. All right, so you got, uh, what, 30,000 votes? Yeah, okay. which was just kind of shy of what was needed. But that was a stuff up on my part. Why? Well, because I didn't understand the system. <clears throat> and uh, at the time, what I did not realize was that we needed to be on both the national and provincial ballots. And Mm. because if you're on the provincial ballots as well, and people end up voting for you on the provincial ballots, there's an allocation that then goes to the national parliament. Oh, so you could have ended up with a seat. Yeah, and if we had done that, we would have gotten a a few seats. Well, you you and a couple other people would be MPs. Well, yeah, but looking at stepping down now, so. <laughs> All right. But the country would have been a different place. But, uh, yeah. but it was in, in, in any case. Look, I, I don't think the money thing really becomes the issue in terms of, uh, of getting into parliament. 
But there was this absurd decision, Croquetto, you probably agree with this, that individuals are allowed to run for the National Assembly. And the way in which that system actually works right now favors the big parties. The big parties. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a complete stuffer. All right, so you have a problem with how big the ballot paper will get. Uh, what else do you want to comment on to start the ball, ball rolling this morning? We've got a lot of things on the agenda, so uh, throw them in now if you ever hold your peace, Kuketa. <laughs> I might end up holding my peace, but <laughs> look, I, I think there is quite a lot that has to be said about this, but maybe if we roll it back a bit, one of the reasons we end up with so many parties to begin with is because people don't feel that they are sufficiently represented in government, local government, national government, and of course on the ballot. Uh, people have then deemed a solution to be, why don't we get ourselves on the ballot and maybe we can push forward the interests. I'll make an example. The Gazankulu Liberation Congress, I believe it's called. <laughs> Uh, most people don't know about it, but it's a registered political party. I believe they will be on the ballot. And they are specifically a group of people from the Guiani Vemba district of around 50-odd villages. Uh -huh. Why do we have a small party like the Gazangulu Liberation Congress? It's because people in that village, firstly, were promised by the government that there will be this, uh, the Guiani Water Project, I believe it's called. Villages don't have water. Government promises them that we'll give you water. The water never arrives. The initial project is set to cost 100 million. It's now years later. Uh, cost has been 3.5 billion north of that. Still not complete. Therefore, people still don't have water. And then these are the same people who are also the primary victims of the VBS scandal as well. So you've got people who are very, feeling very shortchanged about what's actually happening politically. And they've decided that, look, maybe the best thing is for us to maybe put our voice directly inside of parliament through something like a vote. And they're not the only ones. This is how well, you, you want to take that away from them. I wouldn't want to take it away from them. I'm just saying, <laughs> let's raise the bar so that we... So, for example, I live in east of Johannesburg. Imagine I was to create a party because I don't like how Ekuruleni is run. Right. The Ekuruleni Freedom Front. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Why not? You know, I don't know if there's a rule against stealing an acronym, but... That's just an example, of course. If everyone was to take that same logic and actually register a political party, the whole system becomes infeasible. And then you end up having to fold the paper seven times uh, just so someone can actually vote for you. So it's not feasible. And it's a reflection of how the current system has actually failed. No one is addressing this. Uh, props to my money who actually did the fight for saying we want independent candidates. Yeah. So I do agree in principle on that. But within the current system, that hasn't been addressed either. Because end of the day, I still have to vote for a party, even though I want a very specific candidate in there. So that's one of the problems. That no, you don't have. actually need to vote for a party. You do, you do get to vote for an individual. So, for example, Zaki Ahmed is registered as an individual. And he's probably got a strong enough following that he'll end up getting into parliament. Problem, of course, comes is that Zaki Ahmed needs, you know, about 36,000 votes to get into parliament. All of the additional votes that he gets will then get distributed proportionately among the parties in the order in which people cast votes for them. And it favors the bigger parties. So the ANC and the DA and the EFF end up being beneficiaries. But guys, the elephant okay. in the room here that we're not confronting Okay, is the problem is not the voting system. The problem is democracy. Uh -oh. Democracy uh, is basically a failed experiment. Let's just take. Oh that my view. God, that's big. Now you're now you're talking. This is this is uh, fighting talk. 
Okay. Well, boom. you started with uh, Javier no. Millet this morning. Fair and, enough. Uh, and and uh. the idea is to have a system that is based on individual rights rather than the tyranny of the majority, surely. Uh, listen, we had this discussion with Mark Oppenheimer <laughs> on Tuesday this week in Democracy 101. I would encourage anyone who wants to go down this rabbit hole that Canton is opening up to listen to that, and we can pick up the pieces after it's shattered your illusions about democracy. Because I do think that there are a lot of people whose uh, idea of what the perfect system is may be shifting. Very much so, because the, the issue that we've got around the world right now is we are seeing that demographics is destiny. And what that means is that if the demographics of people who have essentially a mental model that completely conflicts with your belief in what your fundamental rights are, you're hosed. How do you get out of that trap? All right, let's look at a couple of specifics. I mean, we can we can get into political philosophy, but I don't think now's the time. <laughs> but, well, before you get into the, the, the philosophy of it, I think what, I don't want what to. Kokeso hasn't done. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a specific. To, the no, reason but, why Israel cannot be a democracy is because the Palestinians outbreed the Israelis at about a two-to-one ratio. That is true. So Israel cannot can, be a democracy. Can, can, I, I do want to hear Koketso's view on what what should be the answer. So if you deem that some people <laughs> feel that they are they're not represented enough and therefore they want to do something about it and you're saying we should separate those people out as chaff, what, what then is your solution for people who are not feeling represented? How do they get part in to be part of the system? Well, the or we just answer. ignore them? We should never ignore the citizens, of course. Uh, you know, we extract taxes or the state extracts taxes from people. So at the very least, as a taxpayer, I need to get something in return. And the least I could get is my voice represented. But the short answer, in my belief, would be let's federalize the state. You know, if we were to vote for, our, let me say, governor in each of the provinces, then there's no need for me to go the extra mile and register my party politically so that I can aim to get one seat in parliament or a couple of seats and try to effect change from the top down. Uh, let's federalize the state so we can actually compartmentalize the governance and maybe I can focus just where I live, which is essentially what exactly people are trying to do. So but you have that in your municipality, in your district? Not necessarily. There's a difference between voting for a ward councillor and then voting for what would in effect be a governor. Uh, in the South African context, that would be a provincial premier, for example. The premier's office still has very limited power. I make the example where if you take the Western Cape, for all the talk of people, you know, every time someone mentions DA governance and how much better it is in the Western Cape, for example, very quickly you'll have people then saying in response to that, that what about the gangs and the poor yeah, communities sure. and the townships, etc. What people don't understand is that the Western Cape government is not in control of the South police. African police service. Sure. So on this, on this note, I just want to bring this up. The ANC were in a complete state yesterday they tweeted this out about the western cape powers bill i don't know if you guys have done your homework on this one but um the anc is very very concerned of course they are because they don't get any support anymore in the western cape so this they've now grasped this straw the western cape powers bill a backward step for south africa the african national congress urges all south africans to call out the unconstitutional actions of the western cape government it's alarming to see that the western cape has embraced the ideologies of right-wing factions and has positioned itself as a supporter of the old apartheid regime. They really are using the most triggering language they can. 
which has never advocated for a unified state or constitutional state outlined in the Freedom Charter. Why are they doing this? Because the Western Cape Powers Bill is effectively something which will give the Western Cape government power to have more authority over local policing, local safety and security. I know that the Western Cape is the only province that has built 10 new schools in the last couple of years, which is an improvement on any of the other provinces. That As the opposed ANC's to 900 schools shut down in KZN. There we go. So we wonder why KZN is such a disaster at the moment. That could have maybe something to do with it. So what do you think of that? Is this just the ANC using a last-ditch attempt to discredit what effectively will make the province is no, a little more powerful. Kogetsa's point here, though, the hyper-localization is really what's needed. Because if you take a look at uh, the greater Johannesburg area, for example, up until the time of us having um, municipal elections in the form that we have now, the municipalities themselves were highly localized. So we had, um, we used to have a mayor of Santon, we yeah. would have a mayor of Randburg, we would have... And what would happen is that ratepayers within those areas then had very fine control over how resources ended up getting allocated. Mm. And so there was a far more reasonable distribution of um, the payoff between your rates and the way in which services actually get rendered. The problem that we have right now is when you have Santon and Alex effectively in the same um, uh, municipal district, and the overwhelming majority of the voters happen to be in Alex. So, you know, this is really um, the wolves getting together uh, with the sheep and, and saying, what are we going to have for dinner? Mm. That's the scenario that you end up with. All right. So, Pums, do you have any comments on that? <laughs> the Western Cape Powers Bill or anything to do with it? You know, I think that Canton said we're not talking about the elephant in the room. And I think the elephant in the room is, is much bigger than... Is it democracy that doesn't work in South Africa? Is it a hyper-localization that we need? But what we actually see is we are seeing a lack of inspiring leadership. So people don't feel represented because Coquette nobody is inspiring. Talking. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> not talking to them. We're, we're, we're not. So the, the buy-in that says, I actually have a government that, that cares for me and wants to see things work. Is not there, and hence everybody is feeling I... like we need to do something. Okay, so we're all bringing our elephants to the room. Kokensos <laughs> is the ballot paper the room for is starters. Be very full. Uh, Pumi's is is inspiring leadership, which is missing. Canton's is democracy itself. I want to say we live in South Africa. We've got a massive elephant in the room. That elephant is the welfare state. Uh, the ANC was boasting the other day about twenty eight million people who rely directly on the government for their survival. Uh, the number of income taxpayers in this country is vanishingly small and getting smaller. We cannot sustain the path we're currently on. And Cyril Ramaphosa is at the 112th birthday celebration actually boasting about how much they have to help the people of this country. And he's also threatened that he'll, he won't, but if the other parties get in, they'll take that away. What well, do you have that's to say? true. Well, what, what do you have to say about it? I mean, let's start with you, Kogetso. Yeah, I think um, I actually tweeted this uh, sometime last week that it is very indicative of what the president thinks of the, the voters' role, really. Um, very undermining, and it's uh, very disappointing to see that coming from the president at the very least. They, the ruling party 
is using the welfare state almost as a threat to the voters to mm-hmm. say that keep us in power or else. But uh, like you mentioned, just speaking on the welfare state, you know, there's quite a bit of talk around, um, we'll start off with the, I forget its actual name, the Social Relief of Distress Grant. I think that's its official name, the 350 rand a month, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we then had late last year in the midterm budget speech from the finance minister was, was that this is going to continue into 2025. Uh, 350 rand a month for what? maybe 20 odd million people, give or take. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money, you know. Yeah. And why is this mentioned in a midterm budget speech instead of in a state of the nation or by the finance minister in the budget speech, which happens at the beginning of the year, right after the SONA? You know, it's quite a big commitment. The reason it's brought up at the midterm budget speech is because it's part of the election campaign to say that, if you keep the ANC in power, we will continue to give you the 350. The minister- it's, seven, it's 7 billion rand a month, by the way. Which that is quite dollar. a lot. I think <laughs> last time I saw the numbers, uh, in terms of GDP percentage, that would be something like three and a half, four percent of South Africa's GDP. Doesn't we, sound like a lot. Well, it's a lot when you consider that we don't grow the GDP by 4% year on year, <laughs> but we are now saying let's spend 4% of GDP paying 350 rand a month to uh, a wide array of people. And therefore unsustainable. Therefore unsustainable, but it's quite a large budget. But you would have to be able to do maths like you just did, which no one else in the ANC can do. Well, let's take a different view on that, this. It's a <laughs> you would have to do very much generalized statement, uh, but anyway. Who, whose maths would you trust in the ANC? Uh, which one of them is your mathematician of choice? Anybody? Jacob Zuma. <laughs> yes, we know how good he is with numbers. No, but guys, let's but let's just follow up on this point, okay? So we're giving three hundred and fifty rand a month. Let's just take the view that in. in By the st- way, that's, we're not including the child grants and all the other. No, 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 we're not including grants, all of those. But, sure. but that's again that that ties into my point. Now, what if we take the view that instead of cutting back on those grants, what we really need to do is to take the model of almost everything that gets provided by the central government currently, so we're talking in terms of health, we're talking in terms of education, all of the money that gets allocated on a per-pupil basis, we just simply allocate directly to the people on the ground in the form of vouchers. They can spend it themselves. So that they can spend it themselves as they see fit. With their children. Yeah, exactly. For education, you can't use it for something else. Yeah, so you consider, for example, that the 350 rand uh, a month grant if you look at it in broad economic terms, it, it's basically quantitative easing, right? Can we just mm. you know, agree yeah. that that's the case? So it's a constant injection of money into the economy. And ultimately, the you know, people that end up benefiting from that is the rest of the economy. So, um, so you don't have a problem with it then in basic No, I, in I, look, I, I'm saying that Bidenomics, which is what it is, is fundamentally flawed. But at the same time, you have to actually accept the stimulus effect that goes with it. And our choices right now going into the next election is that we either tell people we're going to take it away from you, which no one's going to vote for. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you tell them what we want to do is right now, you getting a really bad education system from the government. Instead of um, government uh, providing you with a school, we are going to give you 20,000 rand per year per pupil, which is what you, uh, you end up with, and you spend the money on educating your kids. And I believe that any party that adopts that 
as a platform. All, it, it's going to be popular with the voters. Canton, all people will hear is 20,000 and they'll go, yeah, I'll show that. <laughs> yeah, right? but, so that's the way to but, do it. But here's the point, okay? <laughs> we, we've seen, and, and uh, actually the Western Cape is a great example of this in, in Kailicha, where you have people who have been setting up private schools in Kailicha, where the kids go for a thousand rand a month. Mm-hmm. And parents have been paying that out of their own pockets right. because they know that everything that is run by the National Education Department is going to end up with a 30% pass rate, whereas you have these teachers who can't work in a sad to hey, toxic environment. Don't, don't, yeah. don't bemoan the 30% pass rate. We found out this morning that the free states, grade 10s, only 40% of them passed last year. Yeah, but 40% of them passed with 30% of the 30, knowledge. No, but come on. I'm trying to give them some kudos here. Come on. Don't, don't knock it until you try it. Are we it. counting Orania in that? Um, no, we're not counting Orania. I don't. Is, what, that, in what the is, free, the, is that in the Free States or in the Northern, Northern Cape? It's, it's in the Northern, Northern Cape. Cape. Okay. What is the pass rate in Orania? I don't know, but I'm, I'm sure, sure, someone will tell I'm us sure it'll comments. embarrass the rest of us if, if we see it, just because it's a small and very uh, much an outlier. Statistically, by the way, can you name a single white player in Bafana Bafana? I don't think I can. All right, I, I can't name want, a single I don't know. Player in I can't okay, name so if you want to know why Bafana Bafana <laughs> is not winning, the last time Bafana won, we had a white captain. Ooh, don't make this uh, racial. People will <laughs> the DEI crowd will hate you for it. They're gonna hate me for it. But the fact of the matter, Did you know, is, DEI only works one the, way. The fact of the matter is that <laughs> the, if if you look in terms of the reason why rugby thrives, is that the team actually is broadly representative of the country and you have everyone who has the capacity to go to a stadium, they buy into the idea of national cohesion around the rugby team. <laughs> There's no such incentive in terms of Bafana Bafana. You're laughing because you disagree, Pums? <laughs> Pums hmm? doesn't watch soccer. She shouldn't really be talking about it. <laughs> Neither do I. I used to watch soccer. Yeah, when there was a the white problems, captain and they you won. You know, the, the problems... It, one of the things that, that we're we're doing right now in this conversation is almost sim- taking everything in a very simplistic way, I think, which is also one of the problems I think we have in our government is these things don't work in silos, right? There's a, Bafana Bafana has a a, a, a pipeline problem, a coaching problem, an administrative problem, a player representation problem, and, and, and all of these things are, are not, it's not just the one, it's a million small things all coalescing into a big clusterfuck. And it's not just in Bafana Bafana. You see it across the board in a lot of different places. And that's where we are, we, where we are looking, even talking about should we be giving parents vouchers for their kids? Should we be? You, all of these things are not one thing that is going to unravel the entire thing. We cannot be looking at these things on a very simple, single plane view. You have to look at the whole picture and aspects of this picture. Because I can tell you now, even as Cyril Ramaphosa stands up there and says to the people, we're going, they're going to take away your uh, three, 350 rand social grant if you don't vote for us. That may upset people, but what those people also know is that a 350 rand a month grant is not going to buy them a car. It's not going to change their life. And they would much rather have a government that had solutions that would change their lives than 350 rand. But in, a, in an environment where nobody is saying, how do we change your life? And the only person is saying, I'm going to give you 350 rand and the other guy is going to take it away. The one thing that right now is giving you any kind of relief 
from your social distress being this one thing and nobody else telling you how it's going to work. You would rather have that than nothing. But they know, they, uh, you know, they know that 350 rand is not going to change their life. It's not going to buy them a car. It's not going to get them a bigger house. It's not going to allow them to, to change the, the circumstance of their children. We, and we, we all had of a, those things. One of the comments when this came up on Tuesday morning's show was from somebody who said he has a relative who actually is happy to sit at home and take the 350 rand. He doesn't want to work. Now, obviously, that's an individual isolated case. But what do we say to people like that? That actually, they'd rather have the 350 and sit at home. I don't know, drink, whatever they're doing. Because there are a lot of people who clearly are doing that. There's some people who've given up on looking for work at all. Maybe because they couldn't find any a hundred times over and that would dem demoralize anybody, right? So guys, let, let me tell you the flip side around that. Okay, the 350 Rand grant, which the ANC says is indispensable and people can't live without it. But at the same time, we're insisting that you have to pay people a minimum wage of what? What is it currently up to? Oh yeah. Pumi? So so this yeah. is uh, this so is a good it's, point. It's absurd. So Gareth yeah. Gareth in the comments says, "This is not me, by the way. It's another Gareth." He says, "Remove minimum wage in regions with the most unemployment with a certain daily or monthly time parameter." You just completely remove minimum wage, full stop. Because what what we have right now is this absurd situation where. We have a market that's desperately crying out for inexpensive labor, but government is setting the mm -hmm. price of entry for people into that. But at the same time, they're saying, um, no, actually paying you less than 3800 a month or whatever it is, is uh, actually exploitation. But at the same time, we're saying you can't survive without 350 rand a month. This means that if a person wants to work for 800 rand a month and there's a person who is willing to hire them for 800 rand a month, they're, They're not, not allowed, allowed to do so. To, yeah. 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 There's there's another layer to this as well. Um, the talk of basic income grants. So you've got <laughs> activist groups that are also calling for, I think, a basic income grant of 1,500 rand minimum. Uh, that basically means if you're of working age, that is effectively your welfare that you receive, regardless of whether you are working, whether you're domestic, uh, whether you're sitting at home, et cetera, et cetera. That's 1,500 a month. But like Kanthan just mentioned, that's below the minimum wage set by the very same government. So the question there is, if we entertain this, it starts at 350 rand a month. But, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to get into that 1,500 rand a month mark. And the finance minister has then promised to say we will look for funding to permanently keep the 350 rand a month a thing. You know, that's 30 odd billion rand per year just to keep that going. At 350. What about but at the basic income grant of 1,500? What's the bit example? that basic income grant doesn't include people who are currently starting businesses, employing people, making money off a you know, caravan on the side of the road where they're selling sandwiches? It doesn't include those people because they're earning already. So you want everyone who's not contributing to the economy to get a piece of it, which means that the people who are already making the contribution to the economy are getting punished for it because the money's coming from somewhere and it's not coming from the unemployed. Look, we're still in Africa at the end of the day. so being What does in, that mean? Being in Africa means two things. Uh, one of those is that, firstly, we have quite a large informal sector. You know, uh, All this talk about the gig economy, which you hear a lot by the Americans, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I'm technically considered a millennial. 
And we apparently, that is my generation, we pioneered this. You know, everyone has a nine to five and then everyone also has a side hustle that gives in uh, another stream of income, typically freelance work. That's a gig economy. And we talk about this a lot in developed settings. In the African context, however, we have quite a large informal uh, informal economy. The government can't keep track of that. they don't have the tools or the capacity to keep track of that. So even if I receive a basic income grant and I decide to run a caravan on the side of the road, who's going to know? You know. Can we just go back to <laughs> politics for a little bit? Because I, I don't want us to dwell on one thing for too long. There's so many things to talk about and it's only the first, second week of January uh, <laughs> already. There's plenty. So can we just talk about the Zuma factor quickly in this MK party? Because it does seem that many people are just writing it off like it's not a, a thing. Last week, Pumi had some very strong thoughts on this. And I haven't heard from Kanthan or from Yuko Getso on this yet. But do you think that this is something which we should pay more attention to? Um, now, Ismachashule has joined him. That's news since last time we spoke about it. Merging. It's a coalition. <laughs> well, Ismachashule has his own shop. Yes, what's it's it called a again? Coalition. The ATM or something. Um, African Transformation Movement. A- it, it's no. ACT, ACT, actually. ACT. Yeah. So, whatever. It's basically a way for him to just remain relevant and to be able to get a job where he doesn't have to do anything. That's what politics is. So, what do you have to say about this, Kukieta? So this is now going into the advent of the kingmaker. We saw this phenomenon with uh, Julius Malema, I think back in 2019 and in some of the local government elections as well. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the polling numbers and the research numbers locally, internationally, you've got a lot of people saying the ANC is not going to make the 50% cut when it comes to the upcoming election, Mm -hmm. Uh, meaning that there would be a coalition government of some sort and the coalition, that is the collective of parties that decide to basically all share the same bed, they would need to numbers-wise make 51% or higher. Now, how do you get there? This is one of the reasons why you have notable figures starting political parties left, right, center. Uh, Julius Malema obviously is the obvious choice. I mean, the EFF do do double-digit numbers in the election, but if you can start a party exactly like what... uh, I don't think Jacob Zuma started them going to a CISO party. He's just the figurehead or father right. figure, really. But Ace Mahashule, Saudi uh, Mutweneng is another one as well. If they can get 1% here, 2% there, they position themselves as key elements of a coalition going forward, meaning their voice will matter, meaning they can have some level of, let me say, sway in terms of that discussion. That's a nice way to not only get a job for yourself as a member of parliament. Right, but sheltered employment. Sheltered employment. But look at Patricia DeLille, for example. Yeah. Uh, she gets booted out of the DA for what I think is valid reasons. She knows that she can uh, rally the colored vote around her. Yeah. The end goal was to get one seat in parliament, uh-huh. uh, get that member of parliament salary, which is over a million rand a year. Uh, so and then she becomes a minister. And then on top of that, to really show support to the ruling party. So everyone who voted for her basically just said, we want this woman to have a job. Well, they basically ended up voting for the ANC because she votes with them. Right. Precisely. She will vote with them at every opportunity. She gets a member of parliament job. She's also a minister. Everything works out for her. So you've got an Ace Mahashule looking at this. And he says, why not me? 
Yeah, why not me? So them starting all these parties is their way of saying that, right, I may be politically booted out of Lutuli House, but I still have some numbers and I can rally support in Free State yeah. and Saudi will say I can rally support right. amongst artists, etc. And then also be a Patricia DeLille and maybe at best I can potentially you, you don't, be a you don't agree? minister. Um, um, I, it's just the amongst artists that's got... But you know what well, else... he did Bafana promise them Bafana, royalties while he was in charge. You know what else Bafana Bafana have in common with our voting and parliamentary system, the calculations that go with it. You know, <laughs> it, it, the one thing we're very good at when we watch Bafana Bafana is calculating how many points we're going to need and who has to lose and this. And this, Canton was talking about the number of votes that they got um, for ZACP, right? Mm-hmm. The thing about, and, and I, I do also, I think next week, I'm going to bring my little table of, of absolute numbers in terms of voters. Because actually the number of people who vote for you are very important. As well as the number of people who completely show up to vote. Why I am very much in favor of the more the merrier, because mm-hmm. you want more people showing up to vote. We we very always talk about this on the show. We talk about the number of people who showed up to vote for the ANC in 2019 versus the number of people who are eligible to vote and the number of people who are actually on the voters' roll. All of those things come into play. Where we have almost 40 million South Africans who should be voting and only 18 million showing mm-hmm. up to vote and 11 million voting for the ANC. Right. It's it's all a numbers game and it's it's in understanding the number, the absolute number of people you can bring to the ballot box, that is what is going to make you a kingmaker. There's a by-election, there's by-elections happening. I think the first set of by-elections will be happening in three weeks' time. And by the way, there's a voter registration weekend next weekend. So On the third and the fourth of yeah, so February. If you, if, you, if you care about democracy, you're not like Canton who's given up on it, then tell people to register to vote Next weekend, you can register. It's very easy to do. You, uh, by the way, you don't have to wait for a voter registration weekend. You can vote. You can register to vote online on the IEC Anytime. website. But mm. the, <laughs> the point being, though, that the number of people you can bring to the ballot box mm. is what is going to give you the opportunity to be represented and then be able to vote with the There ANC were 11 million people, registered voters, who didn't vote in the last election. I know this. So, you know, getting people registered is not the issue. Let's talk in terms of Excite Jacob Zuma. Excite people though, okay? to show so, up yeah, to vote. Let me hear your thoughts <laughs> to Jacob Zuma. I want to go back to standing in the queue to vote in 1994. This was in Durban. And, of, of course, there were two ballot papers, the provincial ballot and uh, and and there was this old Gogo who was fighting with the uh, IEC, of, well, the electoral officials at the time. There wasn't an IEC at that point. Mm-hmm. And she was waving the ballot paper around and she was saying, where is Jacob Zuma on this ballot paper? I'm here to vote for Zuma. In 1994. 1994. Okay. There, there was this, this Gogo that was out there. You know, I'm, I'm standing uh, uh, in, in line clutching my... Uh, my daughter was not yet a year old, standing in uh, uh, um, in the queue, and, and there she is. Jacob Zuma, his pulling power in KZN, okay, consider at the point at which he became um, uh, effective leader of the ANC, 
the ANC massively increased its vote in in KZN. Uh, in KZN, okay, by millions at a time. Is he going to carry that vote with him? I believe he will. So we've already. You had, want to put a number on it? No, but what I'm saying is that it is going to be in the millions overall. If you look throughout the country, Jacob Zuma's name power alone is going to be enough to bring that, and I think that's a good thing because one of the things we've argued on this show is that the best possible thing for South Africa is for the ANC to split and drop below 50%. Even if he took 5% of the ANC's votes away, that would be significant. Yes, because he, the, the ANC needs to get below 50%. So maybe we should look at who else is in this Mkonto Sizwe party so we can see who, <laughs> who the MPs will be if they get like 20 seats. Right? Yeah. Okay. I do want to move to international stuff, which I know Canton is itching to talk about. I know, Kuketso, you've got some ideas here too. You've been getting a lot of heat on social media about your point of view on some things, including the ICJ in Israel. Uh, and Pumi always has something to say about this too. But I do want to welcome our guest for the last 15 minutes of the show, Arthur Link, who was Israel's ambassador to South Africa from 2013 to 2017. Before that, he was Israel's ambassador to Azerbaijan and the director of the Department of International Law at their Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, he is in Israel right now, and he joins us live this morning. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? Hey, Gareth. Good to see you. How are you? Good to see you, too. So, Arthur, I'm very pleased to have you on. We haven't spoken to anyone in Israel during all of this since October the 7th. And I think... Probably a lot of South Africans are still asking questions about the ICJ, but now apparently we're also going to be suing the US and the UK for uh, their aiding Israel in what they're calling a genocide. Let's have your comments right at the top on what's going on here. And I see you wearing a Bring Them Home shirt, which is about the hostages, which should still be released. That should be a priority for everyone. And maybe if they were released, it would end a lot of this bloodshed. Uh, what do you feel about all of that? Yeah. Um, firstly, thank you for for for, for noting that. I, I guess I put it right in front of your face. Um, it's day 104. Mm -hmm. Grandmothers, babies. Uh, the two photographs I have behind me are people that are connected to me personally. Uh, Keith Siegel is a grandfather who's married to a South African mm. who was held hostage with him, and his wife um, Aviva was released after 50 some odd days. Keith is in his 60s. A grandfather and still in uh, Gaza. Nama Levy is a 19-year-old girl who is a peacemaker. She went to a peace camp in the United States last summer with Israelis and Palestinians and my daughter. And she's being held in, uh, and, and it's unimaginable what it must be like to be a 19-year-old woman mm. under Hamas after we know what they did to Israeli women on October 7th. Do you want to talk about but, the, 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 the current uh, developments, this idea that we're suing South Africa, first of all, involved? Uh, we probably wouldn't be paying as much attention, sadly. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible situation that's going on in Gaza at the moment. It was a terrible situation that happened on October the 7th. But now we've put ourselves front and center here. Do you want to comment on South Africa's ICJ case and, and the current situation with the UK and US and us suing them for being party to yeah. helping Israel? Yeah, I, I had a wonderful four years in South Africa, and I have friends all over your beautiful country. But your government has shown a cynicism that it's replaced this vision, this ideal of rainbow nation in the world to playing games with international uh, affairs, how it behaves on Israel-Palestine, how it behaves on Russia-Ukraine. It's 
<laughs> right? It, it's welcoming uh, Sudan's al-Bashir to South Africa and then sneaking him out in the dead of night and getting uh, reprimanded by the ICC, palling around with Venezuela and Cuba and Zimbabwe. That's not a rainbow nation. That's a rogue nation. And, uh, and South Africans believe better and South Africa should be doing better. And it, uh, it's an insult to the word genocide the way that South Africa has acted in this case. Sure. Look, Arthur, let, let's park that stuff because I think that you'll find <clears throat> around this table that there are people who agree with you and there are people um, who uh, have another take on it. I'm really more interested in what is the sense that you're getting on the ground in Israel right now in terms of where this is going to be going? Netanyahu said um, a couple of days ago that he foresees that the ongoing conflict is going to continue at least through 2025. And um, meanwhile, we have a, a situation where uh, Iran, which you know for a long time has you know clearly been the single biggest point of antagonism for for Israel, now uh, fired uh, a missile to uh, well, actually there were two missiles that were fired. They, they firstly took out. Um, uh, a base out in Idlib in in Syria, and they've also hit uh, Balochistan out in uh, in Pakistan, which That's shows clear, these are Israeli missiles. Yes, uh, no, 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 no. Did you say Iranian? No, they yeah, Iranian, 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 Iranian missiles. Yes, and and, and my what point they said is that one of their targets was actually a Mossad. Uh, well, you know, what, whatever the point might be in terms of who uh, who they've taken out, what they've shown is that they have the capacity to fire missiles from Iran Long range. that can reach Israel and actually take out targets in uh, in Israel. And this, to my mind, fundamentally changes the dynamics of uh, the way in which the Middle East has been managed for you know the past 50 years. Um, Arthur, surely there has to be, at this stage, um, a rethink in terms of how to manage the fact that we've had these fundamental technological changes in warfare that now make it possible for a lot of Israel's enemies to be far more effective in terms of actually conducting a war against Israel. And in, and in fact, if Iran suddenly decided to open up the taps in terms of missiles, given the size of Israel, how small it is, they'd be able to flatten Israel in a short period of time. So I'm, I'm sure that these are things that are being discussed within Israel right now. And I'm trying to get a sense of what uh, on the ground people are seeing as well, the way forward. How, 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 tell us, how do we end up getting out of this, Arthur? Well... I ha here's, here's a plan, and then let's call it the uh, Cliff Central Plan for Peace. <laughs> I'm giving it to you, uh, Gareth. Here's how the war ends today. Free the hostages. Hamas give up control of Gaza. But they're not the going to do over. that. They're not going to do that. No, well, per perhaps not. But you asked me of what's a way out. That's a way out today. Israel, there, was a, there was a massive ceasefire in, in the whole region. Well, in, since, since, 2000, October, since 2007, but, but look, my, my point is that you know that Hamas is not going to do that. So, you know, talking about, it, it's like um, Zelensky saying that the way in which the war in Ukraine ends is Russia surrenders. That's not going to happen. So when, when we uh, you remove the impossible situations, that's the environment oh. in which you need to say, okay, based on the fact that that's not going to happen, how do we then rally all of the forces that can play a role in bringing an end to this conflict in a way that actually guarantees that Israel is able to continue to actually exist. Right, let's uh, let's hear yeah. what he has to say. Okay, well, 
if my peace plan is unacceptable, sounded sounded no, like a good plan. No, it's acceptable. I believe in your peace plan, but it's not going to work. They're not going to do it. All right. So, okay. So carry on. But 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 then saying that Israel should just stop fighting. No, I'm not saying that too, either. Right? No, he's not saying I'm that. I'm not saying that either. I think I'm, I'm saying give us a. What is the realistic way forward other than a war that Which goes on and on? That goes on and on, and but more importantly, where you have an increasing number of enemies that are now more heavily armed and actually have the capacity. I mean, how do we prevent a nuclear conflagration as as being the uh, what? What the are people? Game? What are people that you know saying about? The end game here. The end game has to be here. We're, we're saying it like this: one hundred fifty thousand Israelis are IDPs in Israel right now, right along our southern and northern borders. We've cleared out those communities. The only way for them to go back home is for them to feel safe, and the only way for them to feel safe is a reality where Palestinians were, or in, in the south, and Lebanese in the north are our neighbors and not our enemies, are people that are not looking to destroy us. We have to be able to live in coexistence with our Palestinian and Lebanese neighbors as we do with our Egyptian and Jordanian neighbors. We have to create a reality like that. And when there's a risk, when there's a threat, when Hamas leaders say, when we get another shot, we're going to do it again. When Iran is delusioned to think that they have an ability to uh, to affect Israel and that Israel doesn't have a right to act like any other country in self-defense. Look, we want to live in peace with our neighbors. We've made peace with two of them. We've tried to make peace with the Palestinians. It didn't work. And we have to find a way back to it. Hamas is, the, is, is blocking Palestinians in Gaza, and Lebanese in Lebanon in, in, from, by, by Hezbollah, connected to Iran, right? Also Hamas, of course, connected to Iran. The way back for all the people in the region is obviously you have to stand up to this lawlessness and protect well, your people. Uh, isn't it true that uh, part of this has to be that Hamas have to be extirpated? They've shown themselves to be uh, a, a, a violent terrorist organization that's lived up to every possible definition of that term. And they've given themselves no exit uh, off, off this highway. So they have to be removed. They have to be removed by force. And that's what war is. And in war, there are going to be casualties because that's what happens during war. This war has less casualties, believe it or not, than any other one that preceded it. So we've just got to take this in the direction that it's going to go. And that means, inevitably, many more months of conflict, whether people like that or not. Well, I, I, again, I don't believe it's inevitable. I think that there are options. Again, uh, um, uh, somebody, or our, our colleague Karen just said that uh, he, he, that's, that's non-viable. I don't think it's non-viable. I think that countries like Qatar... Countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like Egypt have impact, have the ability to, to right. show the Palestinians a better path for their future, I, a better future for Palestinians. I, I wanted to, to get you on because we've got specific questions that you can answer being in Israel. So, Kogetsa, what do you want to throw in here? Yeah, I'll just throw in this. Um, one day, maybe we'll all be ready to have the conversation about Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, 
Uh, you can throw Boko Haram in there as well. We need to have an honest conversation here. So personally, I don't like Hamas. From where I stand, Hamas, they had a great opportunity to really turn Palestine into a thriving nation. Uh, their neighbors with Jordan, their neighbors with Israel, this was an opportunity for them to really do something for their people. Instead, Hamas has devoted any and all resources to throwing rockets at Israel. Uh, that's how I interpret it. So right now, since you're in Israel, Arthur, I'd maybe ask you the question to say, perhaps the approach should be different. Has Israel maybe considered lending a helpful hand to Hamas to maybe build out a democracy or a thriving renaissance of the Palestinian people? Or is that also not impossible because it is completely against Hamas ideals? I'm in the other side of the world here. So from where I stand, I always consider the Palestinian people. But the Palestinian people, again, from where I stand, they're getting the short end of the stick here. Um, they are surrounded by neighbors who are somewhat thriving, while at the same time, they see none of that prosperity because of the government they elected. And to this day, since Hamas came into power, you've never heard of Palestinian elections, I believe. So no. you could also make an argument that Hamas is not only a terrorist organization, but they're actually running a autocratic dictatorship of some sort. So... Can Israel maybe offer a helping hand? I love the way Israel's always expected to be the adult in the room. There's all these expectations on Israel. They must, they must. How, how about this from Israel? We never put any expectations whatsoever on Hamas. Like, how about stop fucking rocketing? Would that be too much to ask? But no, we don't even have a... Uh, you go ahead and answer this, Arthur. I'm sorry. Well, well, you, well, you know, it's interesting. Some people have said that the difference between Israel and Hamas is because we've had these stages of wars and ups and downs and war and peace. And uh, while I was in South Africa in 2014, there was, a, there, were, there was a period of battle. The difference, I've heard said, is what happens between the wars. Israel built up, built up uh, a dem democratic, free, liberal, uh, thriving society, that startup nation, and Hamas built a metro under its, under homes, under hospitals, under, uh, under schools. schools. And all of the money that anybody's donated to, to Palestinians in Gaza over the years. And it's substantial, it's substantial, money. substantial money. It's billions and billions of dollars. And it's not been spent on their economy, on their education, on their health care. It's been held all in preparation for war with Israel. And the challenge is how do we find for the Palestinians, leaders who have a different worldview, who, who see Singapore as a model and not Hamas. Again, I'm not arguing only for Israel. I'm, I'm, I'm here talking to you guys this morning saying, how do we make things better for Palestinians and make them a neighbor for us? All right, can I go back to the international community here for a second? Because we're running out of time and we, we can carry on for another couple of minutes if you guys are okay with it. But what about the international community? I mean, we've got this array of states who've lined up in solidarity with Gaza and frankly with Hamas. There's no other way to put it. There was always this period after October the 7th where everybody was like, well, we support the Palestinians, but we don't support Hamas. That's sort of dissolved. Now those people are happy to say they support Hamas, which means that their intentions were not honest from the beginning and their alliances were not honest from the beginning. Let's admit that. But there are a lot of nations who are behind Gaza and Hamas and are anti-Israel since October the 7th and maybe 
a little bit after that because they uh, needed some time to pretend that they were partisan uh, or rather non-partisan. Now we also have some nations who've lined up very solidly behind Israel. We've got Germany who've said they think this ICJ case is a disgrace. We've had uh, the UK and the US. Um, where is Israel getting its support from? Uh, and wh- where is Iran and, and that nexus of power getting their support from? Arthur, do you have any comments on the international situation? Well, I, I think that anybody who's looking for, re- for, for, for a better future for Palestinians who really is interested in the kinds of things that we were talking about of how do we change the story? How do we get past this? Can't be in favor of Hamas. You just can't. The, but the, the, the group of countries that want to, I don't know, break up this international idea of rule-based living, of, of, of international relations based on uh, interacting peacefully, the fact is, is Israel is the only country that falls into that category in our neighborhood. And while there's room for criticism for Israel, Israel's far from perfect. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty vocal with criticisms about Israel all the time on social media. That said, there's no criticism of ha- or there's no rational criticism of standing up to Hamas, to rejecting. Uh, so earlier it was said that Hamas is like Boko Haram. It is. It's like ISIS. If we want more of those kinds of groupings, let Hamas win. The message that gets sent across Southern Africa and across our world is that's the way to go. But none can, of us want to live I in a world like that. Go for three minutes. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in what the mood is like in Israel at the moment, really in terms of their government. Netanyahu, they were before the war, uh, before October 7th, there were lots of demonstrations, lots of anti-Netanyahu sentiment. And also a conflict of this nature is a drag on the population, you know, because they've got brothers, sisters, cousins, lovers, friends who have to go to the front. And also this long of a... um, drag out. I know it's 104 days, you said. How do the people in Israel feel today about this conflict and about where it is going and how long it is probably going to last? How do they feel about that? And how do they feel about the ICJ um, submissions that we watched? But Pumi, we keep arguing that facts are more important than feelings. No, no, no. I've never argued that. But I do want to know what the people feel in Israel yeah, it, today? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, 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 and I have to say, I was one of those people out in early 2023, waving Israeli flags, calling, sta- standing against the Israeli government, current government, mm. um, again, and, and, and this question about how to stand on our legal system. But here's the amazing thing that happened on October 7th. Everybody stopped. Everybody understood that right now, the fight that we need to fight is for our homes and for... Uh, Your very and, existence. And yeah. that's, exa- that's, exactly right. that's exactly right. Now, that doesn't mean that I or a lot of people would like to see Benjamin Netanyahu as our prime minister long-term 
there's going to be have to be an, a domestic reckoning. Arthur, the the, 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 the leader of the opposition, the biggest opposition party, and, and Benjamin Netanyahu's fiercest critic, uh, Benny Gantz, is part of this government. Mm. They are part of the government. That's, exact, that, right. that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he understands, and we all understand, that we have to win this war. That if there is, if we don't win this war, that there's no way to continue with Hamas wa- waving its Islamic flag next to us. The Palestinians can't be our neighbors without winning this war. What it, there's a, so so to, to answer your question about what's the feeling in Israel, there's an incredible determination, incredible focus on bringing our hostages home, getting them home, on getting our IDPs safe and taking care of them and their families. There are, uh, and, uh, and getting Israel back to where we need to be. And then, uh, obviously, we're going to have a reckoning domestically about what went wrong and who's responsible. And as far as I'm concerned, everybody's responsible, starting so, at the top. Just to but, be clear, but, 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 uh, but, but we're very, very focused on what IDPs are internally displaced people, right? That's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. Everybody who lived along the Gaza border. All right. That, um, that, I'm sorry, Arthur. I just want to go on to something else. And if you don't mind staying with us for a couple of minutes more, I think there's an interesting new development, and that is the Houthis and their their blocking and, and, and their aggression to commercial shipping, which has made the Red Sea impossible for some. Uh, that's interesting news for South Africa. It means they have to come past the Cape of Good Hope. But it's very bad news for international trade. And add Biden, 10 days to that journey. Right. It adds 10 days to the journey and, and many millions and millions of dollars. Uh, for international trade. It's going to be a major problem for many people across the world. It will increase the cost of living for many people across the world. Uh, everybody in the room... Um, and the European Kukezo, Union have actually st- st- said now that they're going to they're going to mount... Um, what did Paki say? Oh, an armada. So they're actually good. looking at sending in into good. the... Uh, these, these guys, it's a small group of ragtag uh, lunatics in Yemen who are holding the whole world hostage here, um, and they're using Israel as an excuse for doing this too. It's just piracy of a different kind. Um, but they're also supported by the very people who want to destroy Israel. Right. We can't right. help thinking that Iran is behind that too, right? 100%. There's no question that the Houthis are, uh, a, a, are sponsored by Iran. It's no uh, coincidence that the Iranian... Uh, uh, missiles towards Iraq match that up too. It's it's the question is is what team are we on? Are we on the Hamas, Hezbollah, Houthi, Iran team? Or do we want no? I don't think. Uh, I, I think part of not, the problem, Arthur, that we have here is that we keep talking about teams, and and you know, I think Donald Trump absolutely nailed it. You know, when people asked him, you know, what team are you on, and he said, I just want people to stop dying. And I think that that's actually a good starting point to look at. How do we get to that point where everyone is able to have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? And as soon as we have the team mentality, particularly given the way in which the U.S. is a waning power, the Western world is a waning power, you're seeing the ascendancy of all of the BRICS countries, and there are these blocks being set up, and all of them, by and large, are not friendly towards Israel. And Israel has to end up living in a world where they have to live with those people. Israel cannot actually be an island. And, and I'm saying, how do you then persuade people who are on the other side and I'm, who are not directly involved in the conflict? So I'm talking in terms of the Russians. I'm talking in terms of the Chinese. 
And how do you get them on board to actually have some sort of role that ensures that Hamas is able to be um, uh, controlled? Or, uh, I mean, ideally, Hamas should be eliminated. But one is not necessarily going to be able to get to that point unless there's widespread killing of civilians uh, in Gaza because you can't find who Hamas is because of the fact that they are a guerrilla war unit and they look like everyone else. And your ability to actually then take them out without uh, having a large range of collateral damage uh, of the populace is not going to happen. So how do we get to the point where we're having a change in conversation that we can actually say, let's craft out a way forward out here that is going to ensure that Israel doesn't get attacked going forward? Israel can't do this alone. But, I, but, 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 but I, I hear what you're saying. I, firstly, I don't agree that uh, the BRICS countries are ascending. I think that chaos, is, they're looking to, to be chaos agents and to, and to cause uh, the Russian word balagan, to cause um, uh, instability all over. Eh, that's not a plan. That's not a way that international society, that people around the world want to live. I think that people who care about the Palestinians, people who care about Lebanese people, people who care about Yemenis, People who care about Iranians need to stand up against all of this. Those people, let's forget, put the Israelis aside. All of those people deserve better lives and less chaos and less uh, uh, violence in their lives. If you care about Palestinians, you have to be against Hamas. You have to be. Well, I always look at the situation and go, okay, if they got what they wanted, let's say that they eliminated the state of Israel, would that stop uh, all of their problems? Would all their problems go away if Israel was just destroyed? And the obvious answer is no. So no, I, if you granted them a wish in a parallel universe and their wish was, let's eliminate the state of Israel, how would the average Palestinian's life improve after that? It wouldn't. On any scale, it just wouldn't. And there'd be new conflicts. I mean, we know that more Muslims have been killed in Kurdistan and in Pakistan and in Iraq and in Yemen than have been killed in this uh, this war against Palestine, which Israel's waging now. And nobody was protesting in the streets of London and New York for any of that. Let's just be very clear about it. People have absolute hypocrisy when they come up with this idea that Israel's suddenly the worst and the most uh, destructive force in the Middle East. If anything, the opposite is true. Uh, do you have any comments on... Um, on the fact that you know that these these Iranians are funding local politicians, Canton. The interesting question for me on whether the Iranians are funding local politicians is how does Iran get money into South Africa? Cash. <laughs> yes, but what sort of cash? I, I don't know, but it's very very possible. We know that this country is the most permeable country in the world and, when and, it comes and, to security. And how borders. much money are, are we actually talking about? Maybe enough to pay the rent at Latuli House yeah, for an look, extra. I, I, I think that <laughs> U.S. dollars, U.S. dollars via Qatar in private planes. Yeah, but let's in the so it, it, stuffed in sofas. But let 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 <laughs> let's okay. Let's let's consider the antagonism between Iran and Qatar to start off with, and and one of the problems is that there we've antagonism got, there. There is one of the problems that we've got is that there's no nuance whatsoever in terms of um, the way in which we break down all of the surrounding countries around Israel. So uh, to the point, okay, I disagree with Arthur on one point. Iran does not support Hamas. Iran supports Hezbollah. Iran supports the Houthis. Iran puts a lot of money and resources into 
um, uh, providing weaponry that's going across to them. We've seen uh, comprehensive studies that have shown that a lot of the weaponry that has ended up in Hamas's hands was stuff that was sold to Ukraine, and then the Ukrainians then sold it on the black market, and it ended up in Hamas's hands. So this stuff out here is the Saudis hate Hamas. They want nothing to do with them. The reason why Israel has built this absolutely magnificent border wall is that they don't want um, uh, either Islam or, uh, sorry, either Hamas or the Islamic Brotherhood getting uh, people into their country and fomenting insurrection. You mean Egypt? The, you mean Egypt. Yeah, sorry, in, yeah. In, into Egypt, sorry. The Jordanians as well. Yeah, they don't want they, the Palestinians. They don't want Palestinians out there. What, but what they are united in is that they all have this fundamental um, uh, hatred for Israel, you know, for whatever reason. Now well, we know the reason. Yeah. So not, not, yeah, but now going back to the time of uh, of of Trump and you know the brokering of the Abraham uh, Accords, and we were well on the path to Saudi Arabia finally recognizing um, uh, Israel and establishing diplomatic relations. And the UAE. Yes. Yeah, and sure. and right now, uh, I'm very convinced that one of the reasons why October seventh happened is to derail that entire process because there was an inexorable uh, push towards peace in the Middle East. So how do we get to the point where we're able to get that back on track? And who are the people right now who can be brokers? And I'm saying, Arthur, whatever you may say in terms of the motives of, uh, of Russia, India, and China, the fact is that they currently have the ability to be brokers. And they've already shown this in terms of the fact that they've set up this rapprochement between the Saudis and uh, the Iranians. Now, for the Saudis to continue talking to the Iranians, the Saudis very clearly are telling the Iranians, you've got to stop funding the Houthis. Remember that the Saudis and, uh, and the Iranians met on the sidelines of the, the WEF over the past couple of days. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of stuff that's happening behind the scenes. And to my mind, there has to be discussions that are pushing people in that direction. Well, I mean, Arthur, the, the Anthony Blinken is hardly a, <laughs> an honest broker in this situation. And we know that uh, the Biden administration is half asleep most of the time. But do you think that maybe Canton has a point about Russia, India and China becoming the middlemen, the moderators in a conversation about what could happen here? Look, um, firstly, I, I, I liked earlier he didn't like the idea of teams, but suddenly they're there's a team he's lobbying for. He's suggesting that should be be more active, but that, that but that's not the grouping that has relations with Israel, with Europe, with the United States. We in Israel, we very much appreciate the American government and its its support for Israel, its desire to help the Palestinians reach a better day. I don't think that the Russians who are continuing to bombard Ukraine and uh, and and and, and hold their own opposition in prisons are the people to, 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 to see common cause with. The Chinese are, 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 have, have this huge economic crisis at home. If we care about Palestinians, if South Africa is interested in helping Palestinians and not just badger Israel and NATO and America and the West and team with uh, you know, the Venezuelas and Irans of the world, then it's easy to see um, which that what the South African government doing is problematic. Excuse All right. me? No, no, no. Which side to be on? So, uh, Kuketso and Pumi and Canton, last comments. Kuketso, you go first, and then Arthur will let you wrap it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
I tend to agree with Netanyahu here that this is unlikely to end anytime soon. And I remember, this is now years ago, someone on YouTube saying that there is a general consensus in Israel that Netanyahu is not the cleanest guy out there, but Israelis at the very least appreciate him for one thing. And that is that he will do his utmost best as a military man to protect the Israeli citizens. So it's at a time like this where they appreciate that. So again, and while we have people like Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister of Israel, uh, you can expect there to be effectively no space given uh, for the likes of Hamas to get their way in any form whatsoever. So this is going to continue. I bring it back to my key point here is that when we are considering this conflict, we have to be very altruistic and actually say what our motives are. For me, it's the people, uh, but for South Africa or the South African government at the very least, they are intent on basically denouncing Israel at every opportunity. Um, The Ramaphosa administration at the very least seems to want to position themselves as let's call it great diplomats or great negotiators of sort. Every president wants to leave their legacy behind. Um, Basically, he left his legacy. In the the sofa. Well, the sofa is one of it, you know, but the Ramaphosa uh, regime at the very least, they want to uh, position themselves as peacekeepers, negotiators, diplomats, etc., etc. And that's why they're going the extra mile with this. The problem with that is... When you are clearly partisan or you've picked your side in trying to be an arbitrator at the very least, you have to at least uh, be able to communicate that in an effective manner. They weren't able to do that with Russia, Ukraine, even though we can all see what's going on. They're Mm. clearly doing it with Hamas. So in the end, it's going to backfire and it's taking us, the South African citizens, down with them. We are going to be known as people who sided with Hamas, uh, irrespective of how this actually comes to an end. And that's not something I want to be associated with when we have a long list of problems back home that our government is seemingly turning a blind eye to. Pums? I think the one thing we don't talk enough about when it comes to not just this particular conflict, but almost all of the, the alignments around the world is the money and how much of a role it plays in the decisions that people, countries, governments, rebels make with regard to this. So Mm -hmm. when we spoke about the Houthis and the Red Sea Channel, the first thing that we spoke about was the cost of that blockade. When we talk about Iran and the role they play in this conflict, we talk about the support that they give to the various players. When we talk about the relationship between Israel and America, it's also about the the financial backing and support that sits there. And Kenton, you alluded to a conversation that has started and is gaining momentum here in South Africa, is about the financial benefit to the ANC of the role that they have decided to take in all of this. And I think if we, we pay a little bit more attention to those money flows, some of the unraveling, or actually the acceptance that this is going to take a very long time (laughs) to come to any kind of resolution, then we'll be able to have less uh, emotional conversations. I think if we're just saying the cost of human lives and the this Mm. and the this. Because everyone, unless unless you're a psychopath, no one wants human lives lost. No one actively hopes for 
death on any front, but that's not how war works. And what you're saying is follow the money. <laughs> a friend of mine wanted me to say that today, but it really is about money. A okay. lot of these things are about money, whether it's the Ukraine-Russia environment, the people are the human shield that is put in front of everybody, but actually it's about the money. Final thoughts from you? I said at the start of this conflict that uh, Joe Biden is not a friend of Israel. I'm very clear about this. If Trump had still been in power, immediately at the point at which October 7th happened, Trump would have had boots on the ground. The U.S. Special Forces would have been going to go door to door um, throughout Gaza, and they would be dragging Hamas uh, militants out onto the you streets. You may get your wish in, about, and, in a couple and, of months' and, time. And in fact, what I'm saying is that um, so Joe Biden is not a friend of Israel. There's a growing um, uh, Islamic demographic in uh, the U.S. that votes Democratic, and they're increasingly controlling the narrative from the U.S. point of view. For me, it's very clear that the only way that Israel can continue to rely upon the United States is if Trump gets into power. And if he doesn't, um, I'm afraid, you know, uh, Israel is up shit creek without a paddle. Arthur, you get the last word from Israel. Yeah. Firstly, thanks everybody, and thanks for giving me time this morning. I appreciate it very much. And uh, and and Joe Biden is a real friend of Israel, and we're very grateful in Israel for him. And uh, our secret sauce of our relationship with the United States is bipartisanship. Is that we're not dependent on Republicans or Democrats, but that's a whole different conversation. And one last thought. One last thought, Gareth, for this morning, is even if you disagree with Israel, even if you have a beef with how we're behaving in, in, this, in this issue or that, that issue, leave my brothers and sisters in South Africa out of it. The Jews of South Africa, our loyal, patriotic South African citizens, have been part of building your country for 180 years. Um, this nonsense about cricket captains is scary yeah, to Yeah, that's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, that's, that's so, just uh, terrific. And so they're your neighbors and they're your friends and they're your colleagues and... Uh, if you want to be mad at me and my neighbors, uh, let's go at it. But uh, but my, but the, the South African Jewish community needs uh, to be treated respectfully and and watched carefully in these dangerous times. Okay. Yeah, looked after more like it. But there we are. Thank you, Arthur. Nice to have you on and good to see you again. And uh, hopefully we'll chat to you again soon. Koketso, it's great to have you on the show. And I hope we get to have you on. Uh, we've got lots to talk about election year this year. So you're going to be back in that seat soon. Canton? Uh, uh, always a pleasure, always stirring the pot. And we didn't even get to some of the things that you wanted to talk about, but you'll be back. <laughs> and uh, Pums, as always, thank you. Very busy show. Very busy show this morning. We went on for 22 extra minutes for those people who complain that they don't get their money's worth on the show. <laughs> you got it this morning. All right, everybody. Cheers. We'll see you tomorrow, 6 a.m., bright and early. Bye-bye.